When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, and hear from the minds transforming healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more with the help of AI. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. <clears throat> AT&T connects an ode to podcasts. Connect the alarm. Change the podcast you stream. Connect the snooze. Ten more minutes to dream. Connect the shower. Lather up with the news, sports talk, comedians, or movie reviews. Connect with that three-hour philosophy show. Change the drive into work in traffic so slow. Connect the dishes to voices that glow. Thank you to the geniuses of spoken audio. Connect the stories. Change your perspective. Connecting changes everything. AT&T. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabby Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. From UFOs to psychic powers and government conspiracies, history is riddled with unexplained events. You can turn back now or learn the stuff they don't want you to know. A production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. Hello, welcome back to the show. My name is Matt. They call me Ben. We are joined, as always, with our super producer, Paul Mission Control Deccant. Most importantly, you are you, you are here, and that makes this stuff they don't want you to know. This this is a weird one. We've been doing some, uh, some hidden history recently, Matt. Yes, uh, we have, and it's some of our favorite topics that we ever cover on this show, I think, personally, uh, yeah? for the two of us. Am I speaking for you too much here? I feel like I I feel like when we hit a historical mystery Mm -hmm. like this, I can see your gears turning and I can feel mine turning. And uh, this one is certainly no exception. This is a topic that I'm really surprised we haven't covered before in the past. I was surprised, too. And it's funny because on our Facebook page, here's where it gets crazy. Today's topic was actually a subject of conversation. Did you see that? Oh, Oh, my gosh. No, I didn't even look. Yes, here's where it gets crazy, our Facebook community page. Uh, Hello, Maddie B. Uh, Maddie recently said, have they, meaning us, Matt, uh, done a good episode about Roanoke? 
And I like that uh, Maddie said, good. Good, yeah. She qualified. You a good one about that yet? Well, and then John H. came through and said, like, Croatian Roanoke? (laughs) So, uh... So I responded there and said, we have not, but stay tuned for an upcoming episode. Hopefully, it will be a good one. And this is that episode. We were working on it. We didn't want to spoil the surprise. We're not sure when this comes out, but we are finally doing an episode investigating the strange story of the lost colony of Roanoke. So everybody growing up in the U.S., here's some version of this story, typically in middle school, right? Yes. It's like a middle school story that's spooky enough to get the attention of even the class clown. Yeah. Well, it's and it's as you're learning, you're first learning about the British colonies within, you know, in North America. And you start learning about a lot of these and you're going through, you know, it's interesting stuff. It really is when when you think about the hardships, the genocide. There's like all kinds of crazy stuff that was happening at the time. But the mystery really hits when you start talking about Roanoke. Yes. A story that, depending on who you ask, has not been resolved even in these our modern days. So here are the facts. This tale really begins in 1580 when a gentleman named Sir Walter Raleigh makes a deal with Queen Elizabeth the first to establish an English colony in, you know, in North America, right? Mm-hmm. And he was given a time frame. It wasn't like just, okay, you have carte blanche, go out there and just make a colony. He was given 10 years to do it. And the whole concept here was that whatever is recovered, whatever's found once, you know, as this colony is being established would be shared between Uh, Sir Walter and his people, as well as it would be shared with him and the the crown, essentially. And yeah, make no mistake, he's kind of working on commission. Yeah. Right. Because that's exactly what it is. If they don't find anything, then all of that money, time, all those resources will have been for naught. And that would sound like a very risky endeavor. Unless we consider the other ulterior motive for the establishment of colonies in this part of the world, which was, of course, it was a military application. There we go. Because uh, England and Great Britain, they were fighting Spain as as they were, you know, fighting other world powers a lot during those times. Mm -hmm. And this would give a – this would give sort of a, a beachhead sort of a home away from home uh, for English military and naval operations to be based at. And Raleigh himself did not personally travel across the Atlantic to establish the colony. As we know, that would be a – that is a treacherous journey. Oh, yes. Yeah. And one of the myths that we have to bust, a misperception that a lot of people share about the so-called lost colony of Roanoke is – the idea that these people just landed there randomly, came out of nowhere, made some bad decisions, and disappeared. Yeah. Here's here's what happens. There's a lot that leads up to this. There is a initial exploratory expedition. They sail in 1584. They're not attempting to establish a permanent base of operations. They're not attempting to start a colony with families. These are dudes who are kind of scouting out a suitable location. Yeah, they're literally location scouts. Mm -hmm. And that's what this whole first expedition was about. 
And they were successful. They found a small island. They decided to call it Roanoke. It's located inside what are known as the Outer Banks. The Outer Banks are a long string of these narrow islands that shelter half the coast of North Carolina, or what we call North Carolina today. If you look at a map from above, it looks as though it would just be the entire landmass edge, basically, and that got flooded. That's what it looks like mm-hmm. uh, from, a, from a map. And Roanoke itself is pretty attractive to these dudes because it has fertile soil. It has uh, easily defensible positions. It's it's well wooded. There's also wildlife. It the, the geography of the island is such that ships can anchor there safely, which is a huge deal, and be uh, easily protected. But uh, as was a common situation back in those times as – Settlers from eastern lands came over to this area. These guys started making all kinds of enemies, especially with uh, the indigenous peoples there. They charged members of one of the local tribes uh, or one of the communities there. uh, They charged them of theft and they beheaded the chief of one of these groups and they burned a village to the ground. And that's, you know, not... Not an initial way you make friends, right? Not a good look, no. And keep in mind they were doing this while they were also becoming increasingly reliant on the native population for food. Yeah. So that's a a terrible first impression. Sir Francis Drake happened to be pirating along the area, and uh, he found this exploratory group. And he says, you know what, I'll give you a lift back to England. So that is the end of that first exploratory thing. They say we found – the first expedition says we found a good place and the geography is fine. And then, you know, the British say, well, how's the neighborhood? And they go, "Ah, it's a little intense, not going to lie, a little intense. You know, we had a hand in the tensions for sure. And ahead, (laughs) and ahead in the tensions. So what they didn't know – You know, the phrase ships in the night, right? We've all heard that in English. What they didn't know is that they were in a literal ships in the night situation because while Drake is sailing back to Europe. With with, that first crew. With that first crew, there is a second ship that is sailing to what they called the New World. These two ships pass one another in the Atlantic. The new group on that second ship, uh, it's it's about uh, 100 men and – they they find this abandoned settlement. They live on the island for 10 months. And at the end of the 10 months, most of them returned to England. But they left a small garrison of probably about 15 men on Roanoke to keep the seat warm. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, and to essentially, I guess, as a, as a last defense of the area that they're currently controlling, right? Now, this next group of fellows uh, who ended up – showing up on the island, they had no idea just how bad of a situation they were entering as far as, you know, diplomatic relations with the indigenous peoples were going. So they, you know, unfortunately, also continued being uh, pills, let's say. Yeah, they were real pills. They're being real pills, real jerks uh, themselves. And it should come as no surprise that these guys, the second group of people that went over to Roanoke 
disappeared. They were never seen or heard from again. Fast forward, 1587, around 117, 115, 117 men, women, and children arrive on the third expedition. They settle on Roanoke Island in what would later be called North Carolina. They found the skeletal remains of one of the 15 soldiers from the earlier expedition, and that's it. We don't know what happened to the other 14. This third expedition had the best shot of the three. It was larger in terms of population and in terms of supplies, and they had better supplies too. They were led by a Roanoke veteran, a cartographer, an artist named John White. This is also the first group to include a substantial amount of women and children. So a real chance of settling down and expanding the population. Right, reproducing. And they attempted to reconcile with the native communities. They had mixed results because there was just too much bad blood. They managed to repair relations with one nearby tribe, the Powhatans living on nearby Croatan Island. But the other tribes in the area still had a hostile, aloof distance. We hear you burn villages. You know what I mean? Yeah, exactly. The colonists were vastly outnumbered despite the size of their colony, and they were terrified that the next small skirmish with any member of the native population could escalate. It could grow into an all-out battle, and that battle would inevitably, just based on the numbers, be a massacre. Yeah. So, you know, what does he do? Um, let's go ask the, the guy who is in charge here, at least officially, um, Sir Walter Raleigh. So he gets in a ship and heads back to England to talk to Raleigh in person because, you know, if, if you have that kind of meeting in person, you could maybe convey a little better the, the fears and the stakes that are involved rather than sending a message somehow across you, the sea. You could also at this time avoid errors in communication. Yes. Right? That would be – that's a huge factor here. So as weird as it sounds nowadays to say the guy sailed back across the Atlantic to just get in a room with Sir Walter Raleigh and talk to him, at that time we have to remember being able to have that conversation and instantly field answers to questions because of course they're going to be follow-up questions. Yeah. That's probably the most efficient thing to do. I, it is um, almost inconceivable at this point. With communication, you know, in the past hundreds of years being so immediate. Right. And he had to plan ahead. So John White said, look, we know things are not terrible yet, but they're not in the best position. You might have to relocate to survive if while, while I'm gone, while I'm, I'm uh, gaining favor and – organizing uh, a rescue mission, essentially. So let's let's figure out symbols that we will leave, signs, so that we will return, and if anything goes wrong, it'll be something that just we colonists will understand. He said, if you do move in my absence, carve your destination on this tree. He pointed out a specific tree. And if you're in trouble, also carve a Maltese cross. So he gets to England. He's got a good plan. And he finds that, uh, surprise, surprise, time and distance have made uh, the empire's 
goals a little bit, uh, you know, they've, they've diverged. The empire and the colonies have different goals now. The col- people in the colonies trying to survive. Yes. People in the empire uh, trying to win this war with Spain. And so the, – In the strategic position of, you know, potentially Roanoke mm-hmm. isn't a high priority anymore. Right. So, so John White shows up and says, hey, we need help uh, in across the ocean. And they say, all right, well, we're – we're really we're doing this Spain thing now. That's what this episode of our our empire is about. Yeah. We're we're Spain. You're very much a B story right now, mm-hmm. and this means that he doesn't return to Roanoke for three years. Yeah, three years. It's a long pause, but when he does return to Roanoke, he's got armed soldiers. He's got the supplies they need. He is ready. The cavalry, as they say, has arrived. Yes. Late, but it's arriving. And we'll tell you what happened right after a word from our sponsor. Snagajob is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snagajob is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs on demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position, warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, Podcast producer? Yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that. With their easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. Visit snagajob.com or text snag to 2424 Two four to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabrielle Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for the eligible bachelor? Meanwhile... The ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, And then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. 
and of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halper. It's just a shame, you know, that they took him from us. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, knocking on doors, uncovering new evidence, including the DNA of a potential killer. Uh, my name is Danny Smith. I'm a detective uh, with Miramar Police Department. This is Scott Weinberger. We're actually reopening an old case, and your name came up. Untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one murder, but almost a dozen. I thought they were going to kill me, so I kept my mouth shut and I didn't say anything. All these years, I didn't say anything. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So, let's paint the picture. Let's speculate a little bit about what John White encountered when he disembarked. Imagine how strange it must have been for him to return to the settlement. His wife, his child, his son-in-law, his uh, grandchild had all lived there. And it's been three years, but the air is eerily quiet. There are no sounds of, you know, uh, someone clanging iron on a forge. Wood being chopped somewhere in the distance. There's none of that. Just the sounds of nature, the ocean, and the empty wind. The houses were gone. They had been taken down. There was one thing he noticed, which was a roughly built fort surrounding the former settlement. And when we say roughly built, it looked like it had been made in a hurry. Yeah. As a reaction to something. And then, on a post, he found one of two clues. What was it? They were carvings. First, the word Croatoan, so C-R-O-A-T-O-A-N. And then on another tree, he found the carving C-R-O. And it was not in the places where he was expecting it to be, right? I believe so. The cannons and boats that were supposed to be at the bay nearby, they were gone. White had buried a couple of chests earlier with drawings, maps, and books. He found these, but they were torn apart. They had been ruined at some point over the past three years by the weather. He found no bones. He found no corpses. He found no evidence one way or another to show what had happened to the colonists, other than, of course, that fortress, the the fort they had built around themselves. So it appears that sometime between 1587 In 1590, 117 souls of the Roanoke colony had simply disappeared. And our big question today is what happened to them? Here's where it gets crazy. So 
when we explore this topic, we find uh, that there are some people who are convinced it's been solved. The problem is that not everybody agrees. Yes. That's why technically this still remains a mystery today with no shortage of what we might call conspiracy theories from an earlier age, from before the term conspiracy theory existed. So if we ask ourselves what could have happened, we have to note it looks like they didn't leave under duress. Yeah, but the fortress thing alone would lead you to believe that they were trying to protect themselves somehow and quickly, right? But because you don't have the evidence of bones or, you know, any anything that would show like a body somewhere doesn't Ooh. show that they were leaving under someone either forcing them with physical action, right? Or I would say equally importantly, the Maltese cross is not yes. there. That was supposed to be carved as a signal of trouble. And – now we have to ask ourselves, we've been throwing around the word. So they carved out the word Croatoan, right? Sometimes I say Croatan, but I think it's just a, a mnemonic plot twist that's happened to me along the way when I was learning this. I'm pretty sure I'm pretty sure my brain read Croatan earlier when we were discussing the here's where it gets crazy mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. thing. It it saw Croatan, but it read Croatian. So um, apologies for that. Everybody who's been like raising their fists in the air this entire episode, um, I'm aware. (laughs) No, let's just plot twist it. There's going to be a second. Here's where it gets crazy and it's all about how they went to Croatia. Yeah, I know. Think about it, people. No. So the – here's what you need to know. So Croatoan is a barrier island, another island on these outer banks that you described earlier, Matt. Now it's called Hatteras island. It's about 35 miles south of Roanoke, so 35 nautical miles. It's called Croatoan because it's home of the Croatan people, the, the native community. And they, this is important, they were friendly to English colonists. So based on that, it seems logical to say if the colonists had run out of food on Roanoke or if there had been some maybe a problem with sanitation or disease or something that made it unlivable, it it would make sense for them to go to the friendly communities, right? Mm-hmm. And John White knew that. That's the thing about history. Every time we relate these tales and these narratives, we have to remember that people born – and living hundreds and hundreds of years ago were just as intelligent as the people you meet today. That is both a compliment and a criticism. You know what I mean? <laughs> uh, yes. They weren't dumb. They just had different tools. So, And we're not dumb either. We just have different tools. <laughs> jury's up for debate, you know. I think it's up to future historians. But, uh, but John White, I, I say all that about intelligence because John White and his crew and the captain he had hired understood that the next logical move would be to go to the other island, yet they never searched that island. John White never searched that island, even though his family had disappeared. And for minor issues, right? There was weather. Weather was a factor preventing them from going over to that island. And they also lost an anchor at some point in one of their ships, and it made it, you know, at least in their minds and in reality – almost impossible to safely get over there because they've got all these barrier islands 
across the, the, um, this whole section, you've got pieces of land that are up high enough to where if you don't know where those islands are, you're going to run your ship on something, probably capsize if, you know, not completely destroy your ship. And you have to be able to land or send you, – you have to be able to keep your safely ship. harbor, yeah, <laughs> yeah, even to send out a launch boat. So John White is not able to investigate and he has to return to England. There are later expeditions that claim to search for the lost colony. They are either incredibly unsuccessful, they profoundly fail – or they are undertaken with an ulterior motive. There were people who said they were searching for this lost colony, but really they were they were conducting acts of piracy or they were trying to, you know, move some product of one sort or another. It, in fact, it wasn't until the Jamestown colony was established way later in 1607 that there were actual semi-successful good faith searches to discover the fate of the lost colonist and Roanoke. Here's the other thing. Now, not only we, – we're talking about the colonists, right, uh, and the, the tragedy, the unanswered questions that are left in the wake of their disappearance. But we have to remember the colony itself disappeared. Yeah, the buildings. Like how crazy is that? The, the buildings were taken down. So – you know, if you're heading – if you were to head out to that island, even if you're John White and you know essentially where everything is, the evidence is gone save for that fortress. Right. And White and other members of the leadership of the colony were not super great at keeping records. Oh, yeah. And there's a, there are a couple of reasons for this. So we'll get into in a moment. But they were so bad at keeping records that people – never knew the exact location or whereabouts of that colony. There were numerous digs in the intervening centuries uh, that have failed to produce evidence of the lost colony. Someone discovered remnants of that settlement we mentioned from 1585, but there's no evidence of the lost colony that's ever been found. And one of the big problems is, with this is that the primary sources, the contemporaneous accounts, contradict one another. They don't, they don't agree. So according to John White, the second settlement, the one that's lost, should have been located near the north end of the island. But there was an affidavit from a Spanish sailor in 1589 that said the settlement was actually near the center of the island where they had stationed some cannons. Yeah. And it would make sense for there to be small, you know, uh, small, not encampments, but um, basically cells of the of the settlement would be, you know, in various places, depending on what you're going to use them for. If you're going to be fishing, you're going to have some stuff that's closer to the water. Mm -hmm. If you're, you know, protecting something, it would make sense to put it towards the center of the island. Um, that all makes sense. The The, the problem is... If you're going to do an historic dig, you kind of have to do the whole island then at this point to really like figure it out. So there there were a couple other things that were found. There was an old well and one small cannon that was found near the Bay Area, not San Francisco, in this case the Roanoke Bay Area. Cool. And that was basically in support of the um, – the deposition that was given by that Spanish sailor. But then some, some historians now believe that the, what was it, the 1587 settlement 
actually is underwater. Right, right. Uh, that centuries of erosion have submerged the the settlement and that we should be looking under the waves for it instead of under the ground. Ultimately, right now, no one is sure what happened to the Roanoke colonists. Or again, no one agrees on their theory about what happened. When it comes to the story of the lost colony, we have a lot of theories. We mm-hmm. just don't have a ton of hard evidence. So let's let's just quickly go to the initial theory. What did Governor John White think? So he is the first person to officially discover the colonists have disappeared. He reports everything he sees in a letter. He says there are no bones like those that they found in the 1585 colony where they found the remnants of that one soldier. And Governor White said the houses have been taken down. They had not been destroyed. They had not been burned. They had been disassembled. It, in theory, to be reassembled somewhere. Who knows? Who it, knows? That would be the only thing that makes sense to me, but let's continue. In White's opinion, they moved, and we have the quote here, 50 miles into the main, meaning that they had moved inland into the forest of North Carolina proper. Historians like this idea for numerous reasons over the years, but when they get to when you get to the part of the narrative where you say why did they move inland what happened to them afterwards that's when you see more and more and more debate we're going to pause for a word from our sponsor and then we'll return with more theories after the break snag a job is where america goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snagajob is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs, on-demand, temp to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position, warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, Podcast producer? Yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that. With their easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. Visit snagajob.com or text snag to 2424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabrielle Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for the eligible bachelor? Meanwhile... The ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. 
In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And, of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halper. It's just a shame, you know, that they took him from us. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, knocking on doors, uncovering new evidence, including the DNA of a potential killer. Uh, My name is Danny Smith. I'm a detective uh, with Miramar Police Department. This is Scott Weinberger. We're actually reopening an old case, and your name came up. Untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one murder, but almost a dozen. I thought they were going to kill me, so I kept my mouth shut, and I didn't say anything. All these years, I didn't say anything. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we're back. Now, just let's, I wanted to have a quick comment on there about this concept that the perhaps the colonists moved inward towards the main. The only thing I would put forward here is that food had always been an issue in this settlement. And if you were moving, you know, to the mainland and not an island that's so separated from probably populations of certain mammals that are walking around um, and birds and other things, it would make sense that they would move inland to have a better food source. There are a lot of problems here. The main one would be that the uh, indigenous populations may not like that very much, that they're encroaching in that way. But well, let's get into all this stuff. Because it really is conceivable overall that the colonists met a much less violent fate than maybe you would you would think, uh, you know, having all of their stuff gone and just disappearing. Because the first thing at least I think of is, oh, something most foul occurred here. But perhaps that's not the case. Right. The Jamestown colonists, when they when they conducted that search – 1600s, they sent out a couple of different parties to hunt down members of the lost colony, and it became a common thing, standard operating procedure for them to question any members of native communities when they made contact. It was one of the things they always asked them about. You know what I mean? How's the weather? Hmm. Uh, you know, how's w- that fishing going? Is the fishing good? 
have you seen any people who look like us? Uh, and if so, what, what's, what's their deal? <laughs> so we're paraphrasing. Some of the people that these colonists talked to said there are settlements further down the coast with people who look like you, and they have two-story thatched roof houses that look like uh, and you know, from the descriptions, Europeans would think, well, that sounds like the kind of stuff we would build. And then other groups told of nearby tribes that could read English and dressed in a similar method uh, manner to Europeans. The most, I, I think, the most dramatic report in the record is the story that someone cited uh, a child who was dressed in the manner of a native group. And this child had blonde hair and was fair-skinned. So they thought maybe maybe something terrible had happened, like maybe a disease or some sort of natural disaster. And that due, due to that, the surviving members of the colony were adopted or assimilated into a native population. Uh, I do want to pause while we're talking native populations. So the island is Croatoan. The community is Croatan. Croatan, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So that's that if you hear if you hear us uh doing some word juggling, if you hear me doing that, it's just my my mind's playing tricks on me. And again. if you if you hear me say Croatian, it's just because I'm wrong. <laughs> Still we don't know. We have to hold out for that theory. <laughs> so this this mention of assimilation from European survivors into a Native American community has doubtlessly uh, doubtlessly had a ring of familiarity to some of our fellow listeners. And if you're from the area, if you're from North Carolina, then you're very familiar with what we're about to say, which is, of course, the story of the Lumbee, L-U-M-B-E-E. These reports from the, from the early days of the Jamestown investigations to the modern day uh, to corroborate one of the most popular theories about what became of these colonists that they assimilated into these tribes. And the idea is that over the course of multiple generations, intermarriage between these groups would produce a, uh, a different, distinct group that had uh, elements from both communities. And this group is called the Lumbee tribe by people who believe this, this theory the Lumbee tribe is native to North Carolina, but according to the stories, no one can really uh, pin down their origin. And you can see a, a, a number of different theories about their origin uh, with varying degrees of credibility. But they have an oral history, right? Yeah. Oh, and that oral history actually links them to Roanoke settlers or at least to aspects of those settlers. So – uh, that oral tradition is supported by some of the surnames within the tribe, which is really interesting. And it's it was – the tribe itself was unique because several of the members, a lot of the members could speak English. And uh, and then if you – again, we're talking about the surnames. We, you look at the family names of some of the Roanoke colonists. You've got people like Hyatt, Taylor, Dial. The Lumbee tribe members – or at least members of the Lumbee tribe, shared these names as early as the 1700s. I think 1719 is the first date that we're aware of there. And 
other settlers who would come through, make their way, you know, and in, in, in interact with these tribes, they would, you know, they would be pretty astonished that these groups of people had gray eyes several times. They would speak English. And there is even um, – it's really interesting because even if you're, if you're talking to members within the group or if you have reports from members within the Lumbee tribe, mm-hmm. they, they cannot come to a full conclusion on whether or not there is a true link to the Roanoke colonists, right? That's correct, yeah. It's, uh, it's come to be called this thing uh, – it's been called the Lumbee Connection. Which is, I love that as the title of – Something, you know. The Lumbee Connection. It's like a sequel to the French Connection. I'm not sure. Yeah, it's it remains intriguing because if that is if it is true, if there is sand to this theory, then the Roanoke colonists aren't lost. Their genes are still around today in Robeson County, North Carolina. And if you are listening, you are a member of a group like this, Lumbee or or related communities, of which there are several, uh, we would love to know your take on this, especially with the advent of DNA testing, which uh, dramatically changed the conversation around the origin of the Melungeon community. Mm -hmm. There's another uh, set of theories which says that the Roanoke settlers fell victim not to a Native American community but to the Spanish Empire because the Spanish had a settlement just down the coast in Florida, right? And we know that the Spanish uh, forces in the West Indies were aware that there were English colonists around. They weren't happy about it, but they knew. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And there's actually a tale here that was told by Darby Gland, G-L-A-N-D-E. This was a Roanoke settler. He left – the 1587 ex- expedition after it set ashore in Puerto Rico to take on supplies. So they were going to stop in Puerto Rico, pick up supplies, right? He later reported um, that he told Spanish officials there when he was making this transaction in Puerto Rico about the Roanoke settlement, exactly where it was, almost as in, I don't know, an act of espionage? So that's the thing, right? When we talk about we when we talk about the bad record keeping, astute listeners will notice that we also pointed out John White was a professional cartographer. Yeah. So why would a professional map maker do such a piss poor job of, uh, you know, mapping things? It probably was not because of incompetence. It was more likely that this uh, this vagueness was a matter of state security mm. so so that the empire couldn't find out you know the the spanish empire forces couldn't find out about the colony and then attack it before the british could send someone over across the ocean it, it really does make you game out the whole scenario when you think about it in that yeah. light yeah as as a counterintelligence act of cartography, <laughs> counterintelligence cartography. That's a, that's a new thing. <laughs> that's good. I like it. Oh man, dude, uh, dude, that's so crazy. Because what if what if it was never located there ever? Oh right, that, on that island. Yeah, or uh, you know, also I want to say the the idea of a uh, uh, a renegade cartographer <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> is is fantastic. 
Mr. White, renegade cartographer. <laughs> yes, he's gone rogue. There are other theories that the colonists were innocent bystanders in a entering in media res uh, into a greater conflict between rival native communities. There's an anthropologist at John Hopkins University named Lee Miller who says the colonists wandered into a violent shift um, of the balance of power amongst the tribes that lived inland because Roanoke is geographically located in the crux of what was at the time intense sociopolitical friction between two groups. There was the Sekotan who were, you know, who had dominion over Roanoke. There was another group, the Chawanoke, who controlled the waterways that were nearby. Mm. And again, you know, not native speakers, so we're not intentionally mispronouncing the names. Uh, natives that the colonists were friendly with began to lose control over the area and native communities that were hostile to the settlers, again, with pretty good reason to be, uh, they took over the area. They gained more control. So before the Jamestown colonists arrive, or maybe right around the same time, either around the same time or right before, the Powhatan had attacked and destroyed the Chesapeake. Hmm. And Wait, that's that, that tribe, is it the Powhatan? Powhatan? Yeah. That sounds familiar to me. Yeah, it should. That is where, uh, that is where the famous Pocahontas is from. Oh, yeah. It's it's not all paint with painting with all the colors of the wind. Yeah, they <laughs> they very much wanted to kill the the Chesapeake. So, <laughs> relationships between the English colonists and the Powhatan were, uh, let's say, cold. Sure, right? but even then, even with that, the English forces were able to get a little bit of information about what happened to the Roanoke colony or. They were able to learn something. Who knows if it was true. If the Roanoke colonists had gone inland in the midst of this conflict, then the men would have been killed. The women and children probably would have been captured as slaves. And if they had been captured as slaves, they would have been traded along uh, some established routes that span the U.S. coast from Virginia to Georgia. And this uh, this is important because if we look at the timeline, the idea would be that the somewhere in that intervening three years, the Roanoke colonists assimilate to another tribe, but then that tribe is attacked. And when that tribe is attacked, the attacking tribe doesn't care if the people look kind of different. You know what I mean? It's, yeah. it's rules of war at that point. Jeez. Well, so – those are some of the big theories, right? Mm -hmm. And with – as those theories were being generated and um, as they continued, you know, for decades and centuries, uh, people in the more modern day uh, have been trying to, you know, prove that one of these is true, right? Or at least disprove a few of these. We're, we're scientific methoding this thing, you guys. And, you know, it, despite – over a century of going on that island, digging all over the place, trying to find some remnant of the colony that would show us like some tiny clue, a little flashlight in the dark that would show us this picture here. We have really found nothing. 
Right. Now, in the 1990s, archaeologists working for the Colonial Williamsburg Foundation in Virginia found what they're pretty sure is a workshop from the 1585 expedition. That's where a guy named Joachim Gans had tested rocks for precious metals. Other people at the workshop studied plants uh, to figure out their properties. They studied tobacco, things like that. How can we make money off this? What can it be used for? Gans is interesting because he uh, was a bohemian mining expert. He is the first recorded uh, Jewish person in colonial America, and he's also the first bohemian in colonial America. This this workshop looked a lot like an alchemist outfit, uh, you know, outfit or establishment. Oh, sure, they found crucibles. You know, crucibles, right? <laughs> oh yeah, classic, classic uh, al- al- alchemical paraphernalia. Yeah, exactly. Uh, pharmaceutical. Let's call them jars. Uh, glassware was littered all across the floor. There were bricks that were probably used or seemed to be – have been used in a special furnace situation for, you know, manipulating and uh, some of the ingredients we're talking about here. The layout itself resembled those of 16th century woodcuts that we that we have of these – uh, German al- alchemical workshops that we're mm-hmm. kind of describing here where it looks as though if, you know, you took one of these woodcuts, if you could if you could enter it somehow and be inside the area of the woodcut and then just destroyed all the stuff that you saw yeah. and let it sit there for a long time, that's what they think they found. I see. So now officially as of the 1990s, experts have only found the remains of that workshop and uh, an earthen fort that may have been built at a later date and time. Digs conducted near the this earthwork, the fort we just mentioned, in the 1890s and 1940s didn't really give us a bunch of stuff to go on. They didn't really change our understanding or uh, help it evolve. Excavations continue in the modern day. In 2018, an archaeologist named Eric Klingelhofer, who is vice president for research at the nonprofit First Colony Foundation in Durham, said, I firmly believe that our program of re-excavation will provide answers to the vexing questions that past field work has left us. I love that quote. So, I mean, it's good. You know, they're pretty open uh, about the fact that they are going to return to some previous excavations, maybe improvements in technology will help us uh, will help us find things we missed the first time that's the, the that's the returning to the moon kind of speak right yeah yeah know? yeah yep shout out to these, the mooners yeah, yeah. <laughs> all these vexing questions about the dark side of the moon mm-hmm. the other problem is that it may be too late there may be an expiration date on discovering the settlement and that expiration date may have passed. Some geologists believe it has vanished under the waves. Like you said earlier, Matt, J.P. Walsh from the University of North Carolina says that recent studies suggest shifting currents and rising waters inundated the site in the past couple of centuries. He estimates the island's north end, again, one of the locations or Purported locations. From John White. Uh, He estimates the north end of the islands lost about 750 meters in the past 400 years and that currents and hurricanes could bury any artifacts. But not everybody buys this explanation. No, there's a guy who has a wonderful name named Guy Prentice. 
it just feels right. It feel <laughs> it feels like a, a play on Apprentice, but it's Guy Prentice. Um, he's a archaeologist from NPS's Southeast Archaeological Center in Tallahassee, and we've got a quote from him here. He says, "If you look at the maps from the 1700s, the island's geography has not changed much. I just don't buy that a couple of thousand yards are gone." So he's estimating, you know, again, 750 meters, it's, it's a lot. Mm-hmm. That's, a, that's a lot of shore that would just be gone. And, and, um, I understand why Guy Prentice would say, yeah, I, I don't buy it. However, it becomes a matter of kind of who you believe and, uh, and bearing out the science because you'd have to figure out exactly how much, you know, how, how do you even... If you've got two experts that are competing in that way on belief about where the water has gone on this island and how much water has actually approached the, you know, the center of the island itself and how far, um, you realize that, oh, something is wrong here. We don't have enough data or something because we should be able to have a, an exact answer to that question. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It, it's strange because – According to a couple of uh, different tests for various theories, the Lumbee DNA may not be itself Native American, maybe European and African. This genetic testing can always uh, – always runs the risk of leaving people with more questions than answers. And now we're looking at the use of things like magnetometers, ground-penetrating radar, things that people just didn't have earlier in the course of their investigation. So it is completely possible that we may be able to reconstruct the order of events that led to the disappearance of the colonists at Roanoke. What do you think about this story, folks? Do you think it's are, – are you one of the people who think that the – Truth has already been found, and that people are just you know barking up the wrong tree, so to speak. Yeah, yeah, that tree that had the word Croatoan marched etched onto it. There we go. Yeah, and You're like picking oh, it up. it's that easy. We figured it out. It's done. That's that's the history. It's over. <laughs> Lumbee all day. Good night. Um, or do you think something else is at play? It's definitely one of those stories where. Your imagination can really run wild when you think about that time and the technology that was available and the fear that existed of something as simple as the darkness where if you don't have a fire going, you cannot see anything at night save the moonlight and what's, you know, depending on the moon's situation going on up there, you may be in almost pitch black darkness with all of the wildlife that exists in the area with tribes of indigenous people that your grandfather, you know, beheaded their cousin. And now you got a deal. Uh, and, and it makes you just think about all the terrible things that could have happened to them. Um, and then you get into things like the Wendigo or, you know, mm-hmm. a spiritual force. Witchcraft. Yeah. Hoaxes like the dare stones, uh, allegations of cannibalism, which don't have any sand, and of course the uh, the strange Edgar Allan Poe, Ambrose Bierce connection, which oh. yeah, the, like it's, it's like this urban legend where right before 
he dies, allegedly one of the last things Edgar Allan Poe says is uh, Croatoan. Well, it's not. I don't think it's true. But his official but cause if, of death is unknown. Yeah. Well, I mean, like I said, it's it's one of those things that it ma- it makes me personally think about all kinds of different possibilities. And I think some of those possibilities are, quite frankly, more fun to imagine, even though it's terrible to, to you know, have these thoughts about the fates of 117-some people who were real human beings with lives that maybe were lost or maybe were just, um, you know, I- integrated into another society. Yeah, that's that's the question, right? And also, while the disappeared colonists get the most attention, uh, there there are so many other mysterious stories. Anytime you're in an age of expansion, and I think about this often because in our lifetimes, everyone listening to this, if the species doesn't completely burn everything to the ground. Uh, we may be we may well see the return of the age of expansion, and this time it'll be to the stars. Yeah, and it's an exciting time to live somewhere where no one really knows what happens toward the edges of the map. You know, uh, I I think about I think about how often history rhymes if it does not totally repeat, and I wonder about the colonists of the future who are going to be out there in the ink. You know what I mean? Mm, yeah, definitely. I'm, I'm waxing philosophical here, waxing science fictional, we should say. Uh, but it's very much a fact that people are still searching for answers to the story of the lost colony of Roanoke. If you have the answer, you know what? We'd love to hear it. Uh, yes. and, uh, and we're not alone. A lot of people want to hear it. Uh, you can let us know on Facebook. You can let us know on Instagram. You can let us know on Twitter. You can find us on Instagram at Conspiracy Stuff Show. You can find our phone number if you want to use that. It's a crazy idea. You can call us and leave a message right now. Our number is 1-833-STDWYTK. That's just stuff they don't want you to know in in a fun, handy format there. Uh, If you do leave a message, you know, you you may get on the air, you may not, but we're definitely going to hear it. If, uh, and it's fun. If you don't want to do that and you just want to send us some kind of message, try not to use attachments just because uh, our company policy is to, to not download things. <laughs> but if you do a picture in line, it's all good. It's all good. <laughs> is that too much information? Yes, it is. All right. But still, you can email us. We are conspiracy at iheartradio.com. Stuff They Don't Want You to Know is a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. A new season of Bridgerton is here. 
And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabby Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's Rappaport's Reality Reality Podcast. Podcast. We have a passion for reality TV, and we're inviting you into our living room. We're dissecting the drama, and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Listen to Rappaport's reality with me, Kibi Rappaport. And me, Michael Rappaport, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. I'm Diosa. And I'm Mala. We are the creators of Locatora Radio, a radiophonic novella, which is a fancy way of saying... A, a podcast. podcast. Welcome to Locatora Radio Season 9. Love, Love at, at First, first Listen. Listen. This season, we're falling in love with podcasting all over again. With new segments, correspondence, and a new sound. Listen to Locatora Radio as part of the Michael Dura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.